The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Level Up with Personalized Care for CLLSLL, Achieving Better Total Care with Targeted Agents and Innovative Combinations. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash KBW 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening, everyone. My name is Bill Weirda. I'm from the MD Anderson Cancer Center. Welcome to our program this evening entitled Level Up with Personalized Care for CLL, Achieving Better Total Care with Targeted Agents and Innovative Combinations. I'm joined tonight by um, two lovely women from New York, uh, Nicole Lamana from Columbia University and Megan Thompson from Memorial Sloan Kettering. So a little bit of uh, introductory, a few introductory comments. I've been around long enough now to sort of have experienced a whole continuum of treatments for CLL, starting with chemoimmunotherapy. When I first started working at MD Anderson, Dr. Keating had developed the FCR program and the FCR 300 were enrolling in, in that cohort. I'll show you a little bit of 20-year follow-up data from the FCR 300 experience. But since then, there's been sort of a revolution, not just an evolution, but a revolution in therapy for CLL transitioning into an era of targeted therapy. And you can see several of the agents that are now approved and or about to be approved um, for CLL that have ushered in a very um, different management um, strategy for CLL, have remarkably improved outcomes for patients with CLL, and significantly and remarkably extended and prolonged survival for our patients. Where I'm talking more about um, healthcare or health maintenance um, and um, sort of health maintenance strategies for patients more so now than I, I ever did, as opposed to talking about management of, of disease. You can see the list of the covalent VTK inhibitors that are currently approved for CLL, like Rutinib, uh, the first generation, and then the second generation uh, VTK inhibitors, uh, acalbrutinib and xanabrutinib. Pirtabrutinib now approved for mantle cell lymphoma, a non-covalent irreversible inhibitor. We do anticipate, hopefully, approval for CLL. Nemtabrutinib is under investigation. And then venetoclax, uh, the BCL2 inhibitor, has allowed for um, fixed duration uh, targeted therapy for our, our patients. And we're gonna talk about those different strategies in the frontline setting and the relapse steady, setting and rational strategies for sequencing of therapy. A quick comment on prognostic factors. So historically, we've done a lot of work with prognostic factors and I've had a lot of interest in prognostic factors over the years. Um, and I, I feel that they're very important um, to, to, to evaluate for patients because it gives me a full picture of the patient and the patient's disease and what to expect from the patient's disease. And it allows me to have a little bit better conversation with the patient about expectations for their disease. And in some cases, it's helpful in uh, management for patients. But as you can see from this registry data, very few patients in the community are having their prognostic factor profile evaluated. 31% have FISH evaluated. Um, probably the most important feature for FISH is to identify 17P deletion, but there are other prognostic categories identified by FISH abnormalities. Less commonly, TP53 sequencing, also prognostic and helpful, um, but only 11% in this registry. And IGHV mutation status, also important, I think, for setting expectations and help, helping indirect um, therapy. I think this is important to keep in mind, and as I mentioned, I think these things are really essential to gain an understanding of patient's disease and to have a um, thoughtful discussion with the patient and um, to optimize their management. Now, when we talk about treatment and we talk about um, targeted therapies, um, we're looking at, currently at data with regard to the category of patients that we feel has an unmet need. Those are patients who have failed both strategies of um, targeted therapy, VTK inhibitors, particularly the covalent VTK inhibitors and VCL2 inhibitor, venetoclax. So we, see, we can see the um, progression-free survival curve here for patients who are refractory to both VTK inhibitor and VCL2 inhibitor, um, uh, which is very short on the order of, I believe it's about six months, medium progression-free survival. Um, and those are the patients with an unmet need, and those are the patients that we're looking for clinical trials and looking to identify 
more effective uh, therapies for. I do want to touch on chemoimmunotherapy, and again, mentioning back and reflecting back on the, um, the FCR 300 experience. So the FCR 300 experience were the first 300 patients treated with FCR at MD Anderson, and these data have recently been updated, updated by Philip Thompson um, and are currently in press uh, in blood as the 20-year experience for FCR. On the left, you can see the plateau persists for the patients in the red curve. Those are patients who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene, whereas those who, patients who have an unmutated immunoglobulin gene in the gray curve, you can see this relentless progression of disease. If you look over to the right, um, that's the, those are the survival curves and overlapped on the red curve, which is the patients who have, an un, who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene, you can see that from SEER data the expectation for age-matched and sex-matched uh, individuals. And so you can see for that category of patients, we're doing very well. In fact, about half of them are cured of their disease and their um, overall survival is as good as um, what would one expect from an unaffected population. However, chemoimmunotherapy is tough on patients. It's not potentially relevant for all patients, um, but I do think that there potentially is a place for it that, that we need to have a discussion with our patients about and think about. These are our goals for the program today. It's to discuss targeted therapy, discuss strategies for targeted therapy, optimizing targeted therapy for our patients, combination targeted therapy, and rational sequencing of uh, treatment. I'm not gonna read each of those for you, but in the interest of time, I think we'll move to our first speaker, who is my friend and colleague, Nicola Mana from Columbia University, and she's gonna talk about frontline therapy. Thank you. So we're gonna take you through a series of cases and sort of illustrate, you know, from frontline to relapse to double refractory to give you a flavor and we'll alter them. Here's a, just the first in the upfront treatment setting. Here's an, an older gentleman, an 80-year-old person with symptomatic CLL. He has an elevated white count to 200. He's anemic to 8.5, an unmutated IGHV, a deletion 17P by fish, and a mutated TP53 on NGS. Uh, so when we think about somebody with high-risk features, what are the potential options given his age and high-risk features? Any role for chemoimmunotherapy and if going on a continuous BTK, you know, what's the data uh, and, and when we consider safety as well? And would you add a, a CD20 monoclonal antibody? Uh, and maybe I'll just say, Megan, in this situation, what do you think? Just a, a very quick review, because we're going to do this. But any role for chemo, just like Bill had just presented that wonderful data from FCR 300. So um, in this patient, uh, the unmutated IGHV status as well as TP53 aberrancy would rule out chemoimmunotherapy. We know those patients have uh, poor uh, responses to chemoimmunotherapy. Um, and so I would not you know, even put that on the table for discussion here. Fair enough. Okay, so let's go through some of the data. The NCCN guidelines, as you know, you know, now that uh, we, Bill just mentioned, we have three covalent BTK inhibitors that have been approved, right? Abrutinib was approved in 2013. It's 10 years later, everybody. Um, and then, of course, we have Acalabrutinib and Xanabrutinib most recently approved in January. So again, 10 years later from Abrutinib approval. Uh, and then, of course, we have time-limited therapy with the VEN antibody combination. So you could see both in frontline and subsequent lines of therapy, both covalent BTK inhibitors and VEN-based therapy are really standard of care options for most patients with CLL. We now have longer continuous follow-up from several phase three studies looking at uh, targeted therapies, covalent BTK inhibitors versus chemoimmunotherapy. And just to remind everybody, uh, some of those studies with each of the different covalent BTK inhibitors, you have abrutinib plus or minus rituximab versus bendamustine and rituximab. That's the Alliance study where the 48-month PFS was 76% for brutinib versus 47% with bendamustine and rituximab. For acalabrutinib, you have the Elevate-TN study that was acalabrutinib plus or minus obinutuzumab versus obinutuzumab and chlorambucil. Now the 60-month PFS uh, of 84% with the combination of acala plus obinutuzumab or 72% with acalabrutinib monotherapy uh, versus uh, a small percentage for the obinutuzumab chlorambucil. 
And then, of course, with xanabrutinib, the more recent covalent BTK inhibitor, you have the Sequoia study. So xanabrutinib versus bendamustine and rituximab with a 42-month PFS of 82% with xanabrutinib versus 50% versus bendamustine and rituximab. So as Bill alluded to, this is sort of that type of phase three large randomized studies showing a move away from chemoimmunotherapy because of the improvement in PFS with the covalent BTK inhibitors. Now, what about the high-risk patients? Um, obviously, in the era of chemoimmunotherapy, unlike the mutated patients that Bill just showed you before who can do really, really well long-term with FCR, you know, these are the patients who would initially respond, but unfortunately, the response duration was very short. And remember, at that time, we had very limited, uh, limited options outside of chemoimmunotherapy. We'd recycle those treatments. They'd have complex, you know, infectious complications and marked uh, uh, drastic uh, decrease in overall survival with chemoimmunotherapy. And so this, at that time, was the truly unmet need in high-risk individuals. Here now, you know, fast forward to, to the BTK inhibitors, really not only transforming how we treat all patients, but in particular patients with high-risk features. So here's pooled analysis with a brutinib from several studies um, with 89 patients who had deletion 17P in different studies. And you can see here at a median follow-up, uh, the PFS and overall estimates at four years were 79% and 88% respectively. So this was truly, again, a game changer for patients with high-risk disease who shouldn't really be receiving any chemoimmunotherapy at this point at all. If we get in particular and start looking at these studies more closely, if you look at the Illuminate, Ibrutinib, and Obinutuzumab, whether the patients had a deletion 70P or TP53 mutation or not, they become really good players, almost like the patients without those features. And you can see that data on the left. And then, of course, from the cooperative group study, the Ibrutinib plus or minus rituximab versus bendamustine rituximab, very similar with or without a TP53. Those patients do really very similarly uh, with a similar PFS compared to those patients without. Now, of course, when you compare that to the bendamustine rituximab curve, you could see, and that's the solid orange curve, how poorly uh, those patients do um, at the bottom with a TP53 abnormality with bendamustine and rituximab. Now, what about the second generation with a calibrutinib and xanabrutinib from some of their studies when they look at their patients with high-risk features? So in the Elevate TN, there were 61 patients enrolled on that study. And you can see the median PFS wasn't reached for the calibrutinib plus or minus obinutuzumab versus 17 and a half months for clarivacil and obinutuzumab. With Sequoia, they had an ARM-C, which has a very large cohort of 17P patients, 110 patients, and the median PFS has not yet been reached for that cohort. Now, what about time-limited therapy, right? That's the other main major option of treatment that we're offering patients nowadays. So this is after the CLL-14 study. This is venetoclax and obinutuzumab, which is a 12-month time-limited approach. Uh, and you can see how well patients do uh, now that we have a five-year follow-up, a five-year PFS. Um, patients obviously um, do much better than the obinutuzumab chlorambucil arm. But here you can see a bigger split between the patients who are on the venetoclax obinutuzumab um, who do not have a 17P or TP53 versus those who do. So the five-year PFS is 40% for the patients with deletion 70B, TP53 versus 65% for the patients on venetoclaxobinutuzumab who don't have high-risk features. So you need to keep that in mind. Now, obviously, these are not randomized compared to the, BTK, the covalent BTK studies I just showed you before, but there seems to be more of a drop-off with a time-limited approach in the high-risk individuals, but certainly far better than the orange curves with obinutuzumab and chlorambucil. So still a much better treatment option for patients, even with high-risk disease. Now, what about, you know, people always ask about antibody therapy along with the BTK inhibitor. Um, and certainly from many of the earlier studies with abrutinib plus or minus rituximab, there didn't seem to be an additional benefit to, that, to the addition of rituximab to abrutinib. However, with the LFATN study, acalabrutinib plus or minus obinutuzumab, there seemed to be a little bit of a split between the combination versus the acalabrutinib monotherapy arm. And so for, if you want to, you know, the, People always ask us, do you give an antibody if you're giving a chronic continuous therapy? Now, many of us may not do that because if somebody is, is going to be on chronic continuous therapy and wanting a pill and not want intravenous medication, uh, and that was the luxury of not getting an IV component to the therapy and you're staying on indefinite therapy, that was most of us would just give monotherapy. During COVID, oftentimes we would avoid the antibody. So there were obviously reasons for just chronic continuous BTK inhibitor-based therapy. But if you're going to look at the data, for higher risk individuals, 
you know, here's an analysis that shows it might be more beneficial in the patients with unmutated uh, IgHV and for higher risk individuals. And so this is where you might also consider adding an antibody with this type of data. Um, and obviously there are many studies that are looking at the combinations or adding even as consolidation an anti-CD20 into the BTK inhibitor. So stay tuned for more data with that. Now, what about obviously the off-target effects? We all know about the adverse events with the BTK inhibitors as a class. Um, obviously the more selective BTK inhibitors have less off-target effects. We teach our patients about all the different uh, adverse uh, events that we know about from this class. Regardless of the frequency and the differences between the agents, we still teach our patients. Um, we know we talk about the cardiac issues, atrial fibrillation, ventricular arrhythmias, the increased bleeding issues, uh, arthralgias, increased blood pressure, hypertension, infection, which kind of coincides, A, increased infections with CLL patients in general, but certainly not unique to BTK inhibitors, um, and we've seen it with other therapies in addition, and of course, GI side effects as well. We try to recommend not giving concomitant warfarin when somebody's on a BTK inhibitor. If you develop cardiac issues, we try to recommend non-warfarin anticoagulation and co-management um, with a cardiologist, of course, management for hypertension, making sure patients are well-controlled. It doesn't mean you have to stop the BTK inhibitor if somebody develops atrial fibrillation, although obviously, as Bill notes, we start talking more about side effect management than treatment because because there are so many options, this becomes a discussion with your patients about whether or not they want to stay on a BTK inhibitor if they develop atrial fibrillation or move to a different agent if they've never been on, you know, medicines to control AFib or anticoagulation. It becomes a little bit of an easier discussion when you have older patients who are already on, uh, uh, you know, non-warfarin anticoagulation for whatever reason, or maybe already on antihypertensive, then they develop AFib and then you can co-manage. So it is more of a discussion in the clinic when patients do develop some of these side effects. And of course, you're going to uh, you're going to talk to them about their increased risk of bleeding, and if they have any surgical procedures that need to be done, you're going to counsel them about how long to hold their their BTK inhibitor. We always counsel them about signs or symptoms of an infection and prompt uh, prompt notification of those, and of course, secondary malignancies and evaluation uh, for uh, healthcare maintenance. Of course, uniquely, we talk a little bit about uh, the differences between the BTK inhibitors, a calibrutib people can start. So when they initiate the drug can sometimes have headaches, and those are usually readily managed with acetaminophen and caffeine. It's rare to have to take somebody off the drug for that. Xanabrutinib has a little bit more myelosuppression compared to the other covalent BTK inhibitors. So we talk about neutropenia and sometimes the need for dose reduction or growth factor support. And of course, you've seen there's been data from several groups looking at switching. So if somebody develops an intolerance to a BTK inhibitor, remember abrutinib was the first to market. So then there were subsequent studies looking at a calabrutinib or xanabrutinib for patients who developed abrutinib intolerance. And certainly, you know, if somebody is having a very good efficacy from the agent and from the class, we try to extend that management if possible before going on to another agent. Remember, many of your CLL patients are going to go from one therapy to another therapy. None of these are curative yet. Um, and so as we tweak the combinations, you know, if you're some, if you have a young patient with CL, they're likely going to see BTK, covalent BTK, then, and perhaps others, non-covalent and so on and, and newer agents. So you need to keep that in mind. Obviously, if somebody's having uh, a life-threatening serious adverse event, you're probably not going to switch them to a similar agent. Somebody has a CNS hemorrhage, we're probably not going to feel comfortable going to another covalent BTK inhibitor. Now there's head-to-head -head data, as you all know. Um, the Elevate RR was the study looking at a calibrutinib versus abrutinib in the relapse refractory setting in high-risk individuals. Median prior therapy here was two. Um, here at 40 months of follow-up, a calibrutinib was non-inferior to abrutinib. And with regards to the uh, adverse events, there was a lower incidence of adverse events with a calibrutinib versus abrutinib in this study, particularly the cardiac issues, atrial fibrillation, atrial flutter but also of hypertension, bleeding, diarrhea, and arthralgias. And there were less treatment discontinuations because of adverse events with a calibrutinib versus abrutinib on this study. Similarly, there was another head-to-head -head study in the relapse setting with xanabrutinib versus abrutinib. Uh, less heavily pretreated patient population, the median uh, prior regimens was one, also high risk, and at a median of follow-up at 29 months now, the PFS uh, was improved with xanabrutinib versus abrutinib. Um, at 79 versus 67 uh, months, and obviously we'll need continued follow-up on this. But regarding the safety issues, again, lower rates of cardiac issues, in particular atrial fibrillation and atrial flutter, 
uh, with xanabrutinib compared to abrutinib. Now, notably, there was not a difference in hypertension or bleeding on this, but there was overall less treatment discontinuation due to adverse events with xanabrutinib versus abrutinib on the study. Now, what about drug-drug uh, interactions? This is very common, right? So we, you know, patients, uh, we have older patient population, the median age of 72, many are on lots of different types of medications. Always important to review all their medications, whether they're prescribed or non-prescribed, uh, over-the-counter medications, looking for, uh, you know, whether or not they have strong CYP3A4 inhibitors or inducers. Um, and so if need be, they need to be, you know, their drugs may need to be dose-reduced or depending upon what other drugs they might be on, could they be changed and altered if you talk to their other specialists or doctors who have them on other drugs. Gastric acid-reducing agents shouldn't be a problem any longer. You know, now we have a new formulation of a calibrutinib. So for all the covalent BTK inhibitors, this shouldn't be an issue any longer. But again, very, very important to, uh, to review drug-drug issues. So let's, let's go back to our, our gentleman. So here you have an 80-year-old gentleman. Take note of this because uh, Bill and Megan will present tweaks to the patient case. There's an 80-year-old gentleman, high white count who's anemic. He's high risk. He's unmutated, deletion 17P, mutated TP53. Um, obviously, the data shows very strongly that chronic continuous BTK inhibitors are effective in the patients with high-risk disease. Second-generation BTK inhibitors are obviously uh, more tolerable for cardiac issues and for some of the other adverse events. Um, and so, you know, this is a, a, certainly a suitable choice in this patient. Um, no role for chemoimmunotherapy based on the data that we were discussing. You could do venobinutuzumab. It's not off the table. Remember, I think what we're going to see in subsequent talks is whether or not it's the right combination for high-risk disease. There might be better partners. Uh, that might make it more tolerable to do a time-limited li uh, therapy in high-risk individuals. And it may be that VENG might just be a little bit more problematic in an 80-year-old uh, who's got to come back and forth and have TLS monitoring uh, and so on and so forth because of the VENG. So those are considerations as well. So I'm going to pass this over back to Bill to talk about fixed-duration platforms. Can we continue? Yeah, yes. So over the next... Uh, 10 minutes or so, I'm going to talk about fixed duration treatment and combination targeted therapy strategies. Um, the patient is a similar patient, but younger, 70 years old, white counts the same, 200, hemoglobin 8.5, has an unmutated immunoglobulin gene 17p deletion by FISH and mutated TP53 by uh, NGS. I think a couple of teaching points with regard to this case that I'll make in, in regard to the prognostic factor prof profiling. When I see a patient with this, these features, I do anticipate that they will progress. They'll have progressive disease. If I see them early and they don't have any, any indications for treatment, I'll be having a conversation with the patient about, yes, I do expect that you'll need to have treatment. You have an unmutated immunoglobulin gene. Most patients who have an unmutated immunoglobulin gene eventually need treatment. Those with a 17P deletion in addition and mutated TP53 usually have a shorter time to first treatment. Um, and that's in contrast to a patient who may have 17P deletion, but a mutated immunoglobulin gene. That patient may be monitored and observed for several years and not need treatment. Um, so maybe Nicole, can you comment, would you expect a different recommendation for treatment for a 70-year-old as opposed to the 80-year-old with the same prognostic factor profile and need for treatment. No, I agree with, I mean, I think the older individual we had before you could get away with because he's going to have a shorter overall survival because he's 80. But this one, yeah. So I would anticipate that he might go from one treatment to another because he, he is younger um, and he's got high risk features. And so, you know, uh, and hopefully you're going to show us how other platforms might be better for this. And to point out, you know, this age distinction was very relevant for chemoimmunotherapy because we had low-intensity regimens and more intensive regimens like FCR. The NCCN guidelines changed recently because we removed the age categorization as we went away from chemoimmunotherapy more to targeted therapy, where we know those agents are well-tolerated in the elderly population. You do see more toxicity the old, in the older population among the ones that we see with the targeted therapy, but in general, they're well tolerated across the age uh, spectrum. Uh, a little bit about goals of therapy, and again, we're gonna talk about fixed duration treatment. Fixed duration has an objective of getting patients in a remission. The deeper, the better. 
the higher the percentage of patients in the remission and the deeper the remission, the better, and the expectation for longer progression-free survival um, and potentially overall survival. So you saw a little bit of this data a few minutes ago. This is CLL14. There was a recent update, a six-year follow-up. This is venetoclax-based therapy. So it's venetoclax for 12 cycles with six cycles of obinutuzumab. It was a randomized trial um, comparing that treatment to chemoimmunotherapy with chlorambucil obinutuzumab. You can see a median progression-free survival for the non-chemotherapy venetoclax obinutuzumab regimen of about six years. Um, which is very good um, with a fixed duration, one year of treatment. About 75% of these patients achieve an undetectable MRD status at the end of treatment in the blood, and that does correlate with um, a long uh, progression-free survival. And in contrast, you can see a shorter progression-free survival for the chemoimmunotherapy regimen. I will point out, and Nicole showed the data, where the six, the, for the whole population, six years is the median progression-free survival. For patients with 17p deletion, it's a little bit more than four years. So it's a two year, you lose about two years in, in terms of the progression-free survival if you're looking at patients with a subgroup of patients with 17p deletion. So they do have a shorter progression-free survival. So a little bit about combinations. And so one question is how can we improve on venetoclax obinutuzumab? When I think about venetoclax, it's fixed duration, and we're thinking about and talking about how do we optimize that strategy? One of the approaches that we took at Anderson early on was to look um, at uh, the combination of a uh, BTK inhibitor. Ven uh, ibrutinib was the available BTK inhibitor at the time, combined with venetoclax. Um, and so we evaluated that combination in previously treated patients as well as previously untreated patients. Um, and we have long-term follow-up data from that, um, those results. The, the agents are complementary in terms of in vitro studies that show synergy between the two agents in terms of clinical activity, where ibrutinib has very uh, good activity against lymph node disease. It's not as good at clearing out blood and marrow disease, where venetoclax is highly effective at clearing marrow and blood disease. Um, and so the clinical complementarity, the non-overlapping toxicity, and the in vitro uh, synergy led to the evaluation of that combination. Again, in treatment, naive patients and in relapsed patients. We have, um, this is a four-year follow-up from the MD Anderson uh, cohort of 120 patients who received that combination, three months of ibrutinib, and then 24 cycles, or about two years of combined therapy. On the left is the progression-free survival, and you can see very good um, progression-free survival, about 95% progression-free at four years. If you look to the right, you can see patients categorized by their um, 17P status. This is two years of therapy as opposed to CLL14 and opposed, as opposed to the um, Captivate data that I'll show you in a minute. But you see exceptional outcomes, including for patients with a 17P deletion. Those are patients in the blue curve um, that have 17P deletion as opposed to non-17P deleted patients in the red curve not statistically significantly different in terms of progression-free survival at the four-year um, uh, readout. And this, the follow-up continues on this trial. The Captivate trial was a large multi-center trial with a similar strategy of three months of ibrutinib and then um, combined therapy for 12 cycles of ibrutinib plus venetoclax. There were two cohorts in this trial, an MRD cohort where patients were randomized based on their MRD status at the end of that one year of combined therapy and a fixed duration cohort where all the patients received 12 cycles of combined therapy and stopped. And so this is a four-year follow-up from the Captivate um, fixed duration cohort. So all the patients received the same therapy. They weren't randomized. Um, and um, you see very similar responses on this trial as in other multi-center trials and at the one-year time point for our um, MD Anderson trial, and to the far right, you can see the progression-free survival curves. The green curve is patients who have a 17p deletion, which appears to be progressing a little bit earlier than the others. Um, and so one year of fixed duration treatment, very effective for 17p deletion, looks like it might be better than venetoclax obinutuzumab in the data I that, in the data that Nicole showed you. I think one of the points of debate is what's the optimal duration of therapy? 
how long do you give therapy with these combinations to optimize the outcomes for the patients? And I think it depends on the patient characteristics, um, and it may be longer for patients with 17P deletion um, than the non-17P deleted um, patients. Very well-tolerated um, combination. The GLOW trial was a randomized phase three trial that evaluated this combination, ibrutinib three months, combined therapy for 12 cycles, versus chlorambucil obinutuzumab. Um, and the outcomes were improved for progression-free survival for those patients who received the combined targeted therapy. And these are the um, tolerability and toxicity data. Um, and, and you can see a little bit higher incidence of infections um, with the ibrutinib venetoclax cohort. Um, and there were, ex as expected, um, cases of atrial fibrillation that we associate with um, ibrutinib uh, reported in this trial and in other trials. I don't think that we will see this combination approved in the U.S. by the FDA, um, but we have seen it approved in, the, in Europe. Um, and I think what we will see moving forward is there are numerous trials that are ongoing that are phase three trials that are evaluating these combinations of targeted therapy. And from those trials that read out over the next five years or so, we'll have a better idea about optimized combination targeted therapies. One comment about the GLOW trial um, relates to the MRD data. This is MRD for the ibrutinib venetoclax cohort. On the left are patients who have an unmutated immunoglobulin gene, historically considered the high risk. On the right are patients with a mutated immunoglobulin gene. And what you can notice here is that at the end of treatment, which is highlighted in the red square, a higher undetectable MRD rate for patients who receive the combination who have an unmutated immunoglobulin gene. So it appears that it's a little bit more active a regimen compared to those patients who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene, if you're looking at MRD at the end of the fixed duration treatment period. So I think that's an important observation from this trial. The other important observation from the trial is if you look at MRD status with follow-up, those patients who, um, are, who have an unmutated immunoglobulin gene tend to lose their MRD undetectable status with longer follow-up quicker than those who have a mutated immunoglobulin gene. So you see a steeper fall-off on that undetectable status for the un un unmutated cases compared to the mutated cases who sort of hover at the same rate for a longer period of time. So that's ibrutinib venetoclax. There are other combination regimens that have been evaluated. Acalabrutinib, a second-generation BTK inhibitor with venetoclax and obinutuzumab, was studied by the Dana-Farber group and reported by Matt Davids. Very high incidence of undetectable MRD status by end of treatment, including in patients with high-risk features like 17P deletion, as you can see by those orange bars um, to the right of that figure. So almost 90% undetectable um, MRD with this uh, combination. What we need to see is the longer follow-up, and what we also need to see is randomized data to clarify what's the optimal strategy. Do we do a doublet? Do we do the triplet? Is it the triplet for everyone, et cetera? So again, we'll see those data uh, moving forward in, in, in the future, in the near future. The other study is zanubrutinib, venetoclax, and obinutuzumab. This has been termed the bovin, bovan, bovin study. Uh, evaluated that triplet evaluated in um, in previously untreated patients, and again you can see a very high um, response rate, high CRA, high undetectable rate for patients receiving this combination with very durable remissions, as you can see to the, to the right. Those, the orange part of those swimmer's lanes are undetectable MRD remissions. There's been one patient that reinitiated on treatment. You can see about midway down, and there's a couple patients who've continued um, treatment um, a little bit lower than that, but a very active regimen. And again, the question is, how do we optimize these combination targeted um, therapies? So back to the case and, and a little bit of uh, a few points about the case. Um, I think you see from the fixed duration, very active regimen in uh, patients with high-risk features, including patients with 17P deletion. Patients who ha don't have those high-risk features do exceptionally well. My preference is to get a patient in remission. 
get them off treatment, get them on observation. In five years, in seven years, we can talk about how to manage that patient if and when they relapse and they need retreatment. And those options are gonna be different than they are today, for sure. Um, and so you can see here some of the take home messages, optimizing the duration of treatment, optimizing the regimen, identifying which patient population do best with a, with a treatment will be what we will look for for the trials that are reading out um, in the near future. I think the other point to make with regard to this case and 17P in general is that recently a lot of us have talked about managing those patients on continuous maintenance therapy. You've seen from the data that I've shown you, they do well with fixed duration therapy, but a lot of us haven't yet developed a great comfort with getting those patients off treatment and prefer to have them on some maintenance. So you'll, you'll hear that discussion and debate about what's the optimal way to manage these patients. I think the other point to make is that 17P is very uncommon in the frontline setting. It's about five to 8% of patients who are previously untreated with CLL. So most of your patients won't have that, that, um, uh, th those char that characteristic or feature um, we see uh, an unmutated immunoglobulin gene, which is, uh, uh, I think we have to think of as also a higher risk for shorter remission duration with fixed duration. You'll see that in about 60% of patients who, um, who need treatment. Next up is Megan Thompson from Memorial Sloan Kettering. Megan? She has a say, she has a say. Okay, thank you so much. So we're gonna delve back to our 70 year old patient. Um, and this time um, we're gonna have two scenarios. So most of you selected that this patient would get a covalent BTK inhibitor. And in scenario one, this is again, our 70 year old patient, unmutated IGHV status, TP53 aberrancy with both deletion 17P and TP53 mutation receives a covalent BTK inhibitor for three years and has progression during treatment. So how will we treat this patient? And we'll review the evidence for that. And then in scenario two, taking it a step further, this covalent BTK inhibitor treated patient progresses and then receives a venetoclax-based regimen with a two-year fixed duration Murano regimen and subsequently has a short treatment-free remission but then progresses. So points for discussion that we'll review, what factors should guide treatment selection in a patient who progresses on a covalent BTK inhibitor? Should you switch to a venetoclax-based regimen or now considered a non-covalent BTK inhibitor? And then what about testing for BTK inhibitor resistance? Should this be part of clinical practice? Does it change your treatment decision-making? And then in the second scenario, how do we define a patient who has had both a covalent inhibitor and venetoclax, a double exposed patient versus a double, double refractory patient, and could we consider venetoclax retreatment in some of these scenarios? Um, so, uh, Bill, what do you think about um, just weighing in on the first uh, uh, scenario, considering a venetoclax-based regimen or considering a non-covalent BTK inhibitor? Um, just as a preview of what we'll talk about. In terms of frontline therapy, what's my preference? Um, after progression on a after, covalent inhibitor. Off, okay, after progression on a covalent inhibitor. So those patients are um, refractory to the BTK inhibitor. Usually they'll have a mutation in BTK, and there's data that supports venetoclax-based therapy for those patients. There's also emerging data supporting the, the non-covalent BTK inhibitor. Um, I think that's a controversial topic, whether you stay in target and extend out your in-target time on treatment and then reserve venetoclax-based therapy for later, or you move to the other therapy, and then later on you can move back to the targeted therapy with, um, with the BTK, the non-covalent BTK. Um, I, my preference would be to give venetoclax at that point, but there's not data that informs it in um, I think that's a that there's that's a de debatable topic. Okay, so let's uh, review some of that evidence. Um, so first to start, um, some of what Dr. Weirdo was alluding to, alluding to is that we now know for patients with progression on covalent BTK inhibitors, and most of the work has been done actually with abrutinib, 
that at the time of clinical disease progression, about 50 to 80% of patients have uh, acquired mutations in the BTK target protein at the cysteine 4 a one position. That's the binding site for abrutinib. BTK cysteine 4 a one s is the most common mutation. This leads to increased phosphorylation of BTK. Uh, it's a catalytically activating mutation, increased B cell receptor signaling. And then in a smaller proportion of patients, um, th they may acquire mutations in PCL gamma 2, which is a protein immediately downstream of BTK. And this data from the Elevate RR trial, small number of patients, but sequenced with similar methods, and shows that uh, for both a calibrutinib and a brutinib uh, treated patients, at the time of clinical disease progression, BTK cysteine 481 S mutations remain the most common. But you can see there's some subtle differences uh, between the acalabrutinib and the brutinib cohort in terms of co-mutations with BTK cysteine 481 and then some other emerging mutations, for example, BTK L528W and A428D, which are kind of dead mutations with a little bit of functionally uh, different consequences uh, for BTK signaling. So this map here, the BTK pathway, um, is a little bit complicated, but I want you to focus in just on the BTK protein up at the top. And if you look at that tyrosine kinase uh, domain, there's a lot of different mutations that have begun to crop up with covalent and non-covalent inhibitors. So this is just to highlight that there's a little bit of emerging heterogeneity and resistance mutations to BTK. So while cysteine-481-S mutations are the most common and also seen in a calibrutinib and xanabrutinib-treated patients, um, we do know that in xanabrutinib-treated patients, for example, a small number of patients also have acquired BTK-L528W mutations. And so while BTK resistance testing is not currently standard of care, there is some overlap we're seeing between covalent and non-covalent uh, resistance mutations. And I think in the future, this might play a role as we learn more um, in BTK inhibitor selection and sequencing. So this is the current NCCN uh, guideline algorithm for treatment of relapsed CLL. And so after progression on a covalent BTK inhibitor uh, for a high-risk patient with P53 aberrancy, venetoclax uh, based regimens are the preferred listed regimens, but you'll note that now pirtabrutinib as a non-covalent uh, BTK inhibitor is now listed useful in certain circumstances. So we'll review the data for both of these regimens. So here's a prospective phase two trial um, looking at venetoclax and uh, patients with CLL previously treated with abrutinib. So this is really prospective, the first prospective data to support uh, venetoclax after abrutinib or covalent uh, BTK inhibitor to VEN sequencing. This was a heavily pretreated patient population, median of four prior therapies, um, did include several patients with P53 invariancy median PFS of uh, just over two years here. Here is the phase three Murano trial data. Um, so this was the registrational trial, venetoclax and rituximab for a two-year fixed duration um, compared to the chemoimmunotherapy control venomustine rituximab. Um, you can see the PFS curves um, on the left, the overall survival curves on the right, uh, venetoclax and rituximab outperforming the chemoimmunotherapy arm. I think it's always important to note when we're talking about applying this to patients um, as a reminder that only five patients in the VENR arm in this trial had prior B-cell uh, receptor inhibitors. So this these weren't patients previously treated with abrutinib, um, but really excellent outcomes uh, we now know from perspective and retrospective data for venetoclax activity after abrutinib. So um, there's a lot of experience uh, here to support the covalent inhibitor to VEN sequence. But non-covalent inhibitors also may have a role here um, and uh, were designed to bind reversibly uh, to the BTK protein, so a different binding modality than the covalent inhibitors, and do uh, seek to address some of the limitations we've already discussed during this talk, acquired resistance, intolerance or discontinuation of BTK inhibitors for adverse events, and then this emerging category of the double exposed CLL patient, patients previously uh, with exposure treatment to a covalent BTK inhibitor, venetoclax. So I'm going to review the data for the non-covalent inhibitor furthest along in clinical development, pirtabrutinib, 
um, which is uh, highly selective, has a longer half-life than a brute nib. And this is uh, data from the Bruin study. This is the most updated data, 247 patients. All patients reported on here did have uh, prior treatment with a BTK inhibitor. Um, so this uh, data is very applicable to the sequence we're talking about with our patient case here. This is the waterfall plot. The different colors here highlight different reasons for uh, discontinuation of the prior inhibitor. So you can see responses with an overall response rate of 82% in patients with both BTK inhibitor resistance um, as well as discontinuation for intolerance. And there's also clinical activity regardless of prior BTK mutational status, whether or not they had a cysteine 481 mutation or not. This is a PFS data. So now at a median follow-up of about 19 months, median progression-free survival of 19.6 months. This is in the overall cohort of prior BTK inhibitor-exposed patients. And this is in uh, patients with prior exposure to a BTK inhibitor and BCL2 inhibitor, which was about 40% of the Bruin study population. A median of five prior lines of therapy, so very heavily pretreated patient population. Um, a little bit shorter follow-up, around 18 months for this cohort. Median progression-free survival of 16.8 months in double-exposed CLL. So when compared, this is a phase two study, but when comparing it to currently available standard of care options for this patient population, um, there's retrospective studies, for example, reporting median progression-free survival we saw of 5.5 of months uh, in this patient population overall, and also five, around five months with PI3 kinase inhibitors. Overall, the experience so far in terms of safety has been quite good with pirtabrutinib. Just about 3% of the Bruin study population discontinued drug for AEs, uh, which uh, compared uh, to other BTK inhibitor trials with the caveat that its, it's shorter follow-up is quite good. The most common grade three or higher AE experience was neutropenia. Um, and in clinical practice, this can, uh, and on the protocol as well, this was able to be managed uh, with growth factor. So we are starting to see some resistance though develop to the non-covalent BTK inhibitors. Um, this is uh, based on work from our group at Memorial where we took patients uh, treated with pirtabrutinib on the Bruin study. And at the time of clinical disease progression did identify um, several different BTK mutations in the tyrosine kinase domain of the, the protein. Um, several of these mutations, L528W, you heard earlier in the talk because they're also being seen um, to, to a certain extent with some of the covalent inhibitors and beyond the scope of this talk have different functional consequences than the cysteine 481 mutation that is most common with, with a brutinib uh, and a calibrutinib. Um, we've also found uh, several patients uh, with progressive disease having pre-existing PCL2 gamma 2 mutations that persist at the time of disease progression. So I think this data overall, while it's preliminary and there's been some updates uh, in the larger Bruin study presented, um, uh, will be important and when we talk about sequencing and selection of BTK inhibitors in the future. So for patients who've had venetoclax exposure in the past but discontinued venetoclax for reasons other than disease progression, that is they didn't have uh, progression of their CLL while on the inhibitor itself, you know, the question becomes, can you recycle a therapy? So I think that this is... Uh, uh, relevant uh, to talking about the fixed duration treatments, whether it's, you know, upfront venetoclaxo-venetuzumab, um, using the Murano regimen as a two-year fixed duration in the relapse setting, and maybe even, you know, a little future thinking with the BTK-BCL2 combinations, how do we manage these patients? So this is retrospective evidence um, looking at patients who were retreated with venetoclax. This was a heavily, heavily pretreated patient population looked at here. Over half of the patient population had been exposed to a BTK inhibitor before. Um, there was a median of 16 months between the, the start of the initial venetoclax and, and venetoclax retreatment and a median progression-free survival of 25 months. What the correct duration is between the end of the prior venetoclax treatment and the beginning of a venetoclax retreatment is an outstanding you know, clinical question that we need to further investigate. Um, and that kind of plays into this concept that we were talking about earlier, double exposed versus double refractory patients. So a double refractory patient 
we can say as a patient who has relapsed CLL, who progressed on both treatment modalities, a covalent inhibitor and head disease progression on venetoclax. A double exposed patient has been exposed to both therapies, but may or may not be uh, resistant truly to both modalities. So there's a subgroup of patients, for example, who discontinue venetoclax for completion of planned therapy rather than disease progression, and what the optimal treatment-free remission to be considered refractory versus exposed, I think, is still debatable. Many people have cited 24 months um, as, as a number by expert opinion, but we really need more data to better define this. Um, and when, when we really can turn back to venetoclax retreatment versus switching um, to another treatment modality. So uh, just to touch on um, this double refractory CLL space, there's many agents that are in clinical development currently. We talked about the non-covalent BTK inhibitor pirtabrutinib, which is now NCCN listed, as you saw, not, not yet FDA approved. Nemtabrutinib is a non-covalent inhibitor in clinical trials. CAR T-cell therapy, uh, specifically CD19-directed CAR T-cell therapy, for example, lysocell, um, there were double refractory CLL patients treated on this study, and there have been very durable responses in some of those patients. BTK degraders are first in human clinical trials, looking at ways to overcome those BTK mutations that uh, cause resistance. And then bispecific antibodies have shown a lot of promise in lymphomas um, and are now uh, being explored in CLL. So just to recap our clinical case here, for patients who progress on a covalent BTK inhibitor, there's data to support sequencing to a venetoclax platform or a non-covalent BTK inhibitor. I think there's more experience with venetoclax, but the Bruin study did include 247 patients who were previously treated with a BTK inhibitor, so there are data to support use in that setting. We don't have any randomized data, and a lot of future trials are going to have to explore uh, sequencing in this clinical question. For double-exposed CLL, so in the scenario two, if there was just a short treatment-free uh, remission after completion of venetoclax, say less than two years, it does make sense to switch to a different treatment modality. But if there's a longer treatment-free uh, remission, say three years after completion of venetoclax, venetoclax retreatment may be an option and prospective validation of that strategy is ongoing. Great. Thank you, Megan. Uh, we have time for a few questions. Uh, I think we're going to finish at 35 minutes after. So if you have any questions, submit them through the QR code and I'll be happy to read them. Um, I don't see any questions yet. Maybe I can ask a couple questions or ask maybe Nicole, I'll give you a chance to take a breather, Megan. Nicole, can you comment on if you have a patient who's been on a covalent BTK inhibitor frontline is progressing, their white count's starting to rise, their nodes are starting to grow, what strategy do you use in terms of transitioning that patient over to the next treatment? whether you're going on a, a non-covalent BTK inhibitor or venetoclax-based therapy. Okay, so that's fair. So I think that one of the points to, to mention is that obviously if somebody's starting to progress, now they're, if they have high-risk disease, they're probably going to progress a lot quicker. So if somebody's got 17P or P53 or complex karyotype, their progression may go a little faster versus somebody who may have favorable risk uh, you know, characteristics. And sometimes you can actually watch those individuals, even if their white count's going up. It's almost like they're still on active observation, but they're slowly progressing and they don't meet indications for therapy by IWCLO criteria. And you can actually, some of those guys can buy more time on a covalent BTK inhibitor. <laughs> but I think what Bill's trying to bring up is, as sometimes, remember, if you stop the BTK inhibitor, and this also depends in part uh, on their disease uh, burden as well, some of those patients may have a rebound or a flare, or you, know, you might need to bridge them. And so some people might need to be overlapped if you're gonna switch them to a different form of therapy whether that be, you know, a VEN-based regimen, um, you know, you might want to overlap in that fashion. Others, you might be able to get away with um, sort of discontinuation, but a short, you know, I think one of the challenges we had when actually venetoclax came available in the phase one, phase two studies was that the studies required you to be off of therapy for at least a week. Um, and some of those individuals, remember, then required a ramp up. And so in the early phase studies, the patients were blowing through because their disease was 
uh, becoming very aggressive quickly and we couldn't wait to get to the next week of 20 milligrams, 50 milligrams. And so you really had to bridge them, whether it be with steroids or continuing the BTK. So you just need to think about that as some of the individuals might need to be bridged if you're gonna switch their therapy because they might have a rapid progression and they're not really failing the venetoclax ramp up. Um, it's just that they're not getting enough drug into them quick enough. Now, you can also, if you're gonna to go to a Ven-based strategy in that fashion, you can also swap the way you're doing this. Uh, and certainly you can front load the antibody in a sense uh, and get their disease under control so that you'll have enough time then for the Ven to ramp up and you won't have to worry about that. So there's multiple uh, ways or arts of medicine to do this. But that's one of the points you need to remember. You might have to bridge some of your folks and not just, frankly, discontinue the BTKs, particularly if they're multiply relapsed. So we actually have a lot of questions here. Uh, many of them come from our virtual audience. So Megan, um, what's your experience in dose modifying second generation B2K inhibitors to address adverse events? So maybe you can sort of review the adverse events that we see with the covalent inhibitors and dose adjustment and where that's appropriate. Yeah, um, so I think that's a great point. Um, for abrutinib, there's probably the most data out there on dose reductions and, and guidelines. Um, for the second generation covalent inhibitors, though, a calabrutinib, for example, um, it's you know 100 milligrams BID. Um, given the half-life of the drug, there's not really, uh, by the label, as, as much flexibility in dose reducing the drug. Um, I think a lot of us have been um, able to uh, manage the, the AEs, um, you know, with other tricks or tips, for example, headache um, with caffeine and Tylenol rather than going for a dose modification. Um, you know, uh, very occasionally um, I have had a patient on a calibrutin of 100 milligram daily, but that's not really a data-driven approach. Xanabrutinib um, with uh, twice, uh, you know, there's two dosings. There's the twice daily dosing and then uh, daily dosing as well. Um, you can also, um, again, try uh, for dose modification. But I think a lot of progress has been made in terms of managing AEs without going to that dose modification. Um, other, other strategies um, for um, the uh, adverse events, especially neutropenia, for example, with xanabrutinib um, using growth factor. Um, so it's, again, one of these art things and, and kind of patient-specific about whether they'll stay on the drug in, in 2023 or, or go to an alternative therapy. Great. So we heard a little bit about BTK mutations and resistance. Nicole, can you comment on the utility of evaluating for BTK mutations, when you might do it, and how it might be clinically relevant in practice. Yeah, I mean, so this is an evolving field, obviously. I mean, you know, for the most of patients, if you're going to, you know, I mean, I think for us, we do check for resistant mutations. However, this is more of an academic question to gather data. Um, you know, most patients, if they're, if they're failing a covalent BTK inhibitor because they have progressive disease, Regardless if you identify that they have a BTK C481S mutation or one of the other mutations, you're still going to be switching them off a covalent BTK inhibitor. So again, academic questions going to help us, I think, down the road for sequencing of drugs right now routinely, probably not yet for mainstream um, and, uh, you know, stay tuned, but you're going to move away from, you're not going to give them another covalent BTK inhibitor if they're failing a current B a covalent BTK inhibitor. So in practice, you're gonna move away from it. So is the utility of drawing it and knowing it until we show that there's a reason to do that? Probably not so much, but we tend to do it in academia because we're trying to see what the best sequence is and how to maneuver drugs. But for practice, you're gonna move away. I'm gonna give each one of you one more question. There's a lot of great questions, but I think we're at, at the end of our time. So Megan, any role for pirtabrutinib in the frontline setting? <laughs> Uh, definitely a clinical trial question, um, and there is an ongoing clinical trial looking at um, pirtabrutinib versus brutinib in the frontline setting, so we'll have data on this. Um, so today, no, because we don't have the data, uh, I would say, and I think we're just going to have to await the results of clinical trials, um, and I think this is where some of that resistance mutation profiling might ultimately fit in. Um, but not in 2023. Nicole, the PA3 kinase inhibitors we've had for a while, 
Can, we didn't talk a lot about them. Can you just comment perhaps on, is there a role for them these days? Are you asking me that because I'm old and no, no. on Cal 101 from the beginning? No. Um, so, uh, you know, obviously, you know, the PI3 kinase inhibitors, very active agents. You know, we had a lot of great data with Idelisib, which was obviously the first to market. But as many of you note, in the, um, they had certain toxicities that became difficult to manage, uh, particularly the GI toxicities uh, and, and uh, you know, the colitis and the diarrhea issues that when we talk about, obviously, chronic continuous therapy, people would come off due to, you know, discontinuation, just like we talk about Ibrutinib. So the upfront studies with the PI3 kinase inhibitors, unfortunately, there was infectious complications and, and increased deaths, and so the studies were halted. So right now, you know, in the relapse setting, I think that, you know, you could still potentially use it. The issue is that, remember, they are also B-cell receptor pathway inhibitors. So if they're failing a covalent BTK inhibitor, we do have data in the retrospective um, uh, cohort series that, that shows that you can go to a PI3 kinase, but the response duration probably won't be very long. So you have to look at it as a bridge. So if you're going to bridge it to an alternative therapy, that's fine, but the response duration won't be very long, so you should just know that. So I think right now it'll remain in the relapse setting, of course, uh, but there are other agents coming down the pike. So then the question is, how far does it get pushed? Great. So thank you. I would like to thank Peerview and the sponsors for this event. I'd like to thank the audience and our virtual audience for spending the evening with us. I'd like to thank Megan and Nicole for their excellent presentation and discussion, and hope you have a good rest of the Soho meeting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash KBW860. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from AstraZeneca Beijing, Pharmacyclics LLC and AbbVie Company, and Janssen Biotech Incorporated, administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs LLC and Lilly.